Christ follows in the room that you would never lose the awe and the wonder of the privilege that we have to worship God. There was a day you had to do it very differently. You had to come to a high priest, had to offer him a sacrifice, and he'd, he'd say your prayers for you. But when Jesus became our high priest, he removed that barrier, and now we have the privilege, folks, of speaking to and worshiping the creator of the universe one-on-one -on -one and as a corporate family, and it's a privilege. And I pray that you're overwhelmed by it, that you're stunned by the privilege to encounter the presence of the living God. I love worshiping with a um, multi-generational church. It's good to look around and see all the ages. And... Um, I, I too serve in a multi-generational church. I'm a part of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. My name is Greg. I've been on staff there for 34 years. The first seven was a student pastor. The next 23 was the worship pastor. And the last four years as a campus pastor at one of our five campuses. And um, it's just good to be with you. Uh, I have prayed for you many, many times. I prayed for you during the transition of senior pastors. I prayed for you during your transition of worship pastors. I love Patrick, I love Jeremy. I pray that Patrick grows up one day. But uh, <laughs> I know those two men, and I know that they love God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. And I also know this, I know they love you. And so I hope that even though we all know they're very young, that you will encourage them as your lead pastor and as your worship pastor. So, um, and I love it, we're in a sermon series on marriage. Journey of two, I love that. I've been married to my wife, Laurie. We were high school sweethearts. We've been now married 32 years. We have three daughters, Chelsea, Macy, Chloe. Chelsea's 27. She married Alex seven months ago. My middle daughter, Macy's 25. She married Drew three years ago. My youngest daughter, surprise child, she's 18, Chloe. And she's about to go to college and she is not dating anybody and she hears me say all the time, Chloe, there's no boy gonna like you like your daddy loves you. And that's true, yes, that's right. So um, my wife's parents have been married 59 years. Before my mom died a year ago, my mom and dad were married 56 years and so Laurie and I have this privilege of seeing faithful and fruitful marriages. And for the past 34 years now, being a pastor, there's one thing I know for sure. I can say that this is a true statement, that marriages everywhere need help. And you're no different. Marriages everywhere need help. The greatest percentage of people who come sitting in my office who are asking for help of some sort are generally asking for help with the marriage. A husband comes in and says, I can't figure this out, help me. Wives come in and say, I can't figure this out, will you help me? Trouble's been brewing for some time, 
but they're either too embarrassed to ask for help, too proud to ask for help, or they just don't know how, they don't know who to ask to help them. So I'm glad you're doing this marriage series because I think beyond a shadow of a doubt that the church is the best place to talk about marriage because marriage is God's idea. It's not one created by some president or some ruler of any nation. God created marriage. A few years ago, a couple came into my office and they were really struggling. They were living together, but they wanted me to help them in their relationship. So when I told them, well, what I'd love to do is talk to you about what God's plan, God's heart from the Bible, and what that looks like for marriage. And she looked at me and she said, well, what does God care if we're married? And I said, well, God created marriage. She said, well, how do you know that? So I put a Bible on both of their laps. So we opened to Genesis chapter one and said, look, God created Adam. Then he took a rib from his side to create Eve. And she stopped right there and said, wait a minute, does my boyfriend missing a rib? Oh, it's the Bible story. And then God introduces Adam to Eve. And then in Genesis chapter 2, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two become as one. So I said, see, before the second chapter of the Bible is finished, God has created marriage. I went on to share the gospel with both of them. And a few months later, she accepted Christ. Two months after that, he accepted Christ. Two months after that, I performed their wedding ceremony. And I wish I had them here today so you could see what God has done in the lives of two people who understand that marriage is God's idea. Now, the reason I tell you that story is this, because there's somebody in a room this size that still doesn't, still doesn't understand marriage is God's, and it's best done God's way. So I'm glad you're doing this journey of two, and the title today is this, it's called Unknown Territory. So what I want to do is talk with us today about the reality of this journey in the early years of marriage when the lure of physical attraction, the, heart, the heat of passion, and the excitement of romance that brought us together starts to wane a bit. And then the reality sets in that marriage is hard because it is. Now, for those of you who are still just dating or you're newly married and you heard what I just said and you think, well, that's silly or now you're scared. Well, I don't want to scare you. I just want to help prepare you. And for some of you who have already hit the hard stage in this unknown territory of marriage and you're really discouraged, I really want to encourage you today. So as we're using Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, as some of the Bibles say, as our guide, we come to chapter one, if you want to go ahead and turn there, the first chapter of Song of Songs. And as we're using that for the series, chapter one is filled with the passion of young love and physical attraction and just how silly a boy and a girl can talk and think when passion overwhelms them. Matter of fact, the first chapter of Song of Songs reminds me of when I was first getting to know my wife in high school. I mentioned we were high school sweethearts. So it was our junior year, and we had already been in the same friend group, and I knew that Laurie was a Christ follower. I also knew she was very smart, I knew she was very humble, but she was cute. But I didn't know that she knew that I was even in the same friend group. And one day, last class of the day, the guys are in study hall and the girls are in PE class. And we went down the hallway to stare in the glass doors of the girls in PE class. And they were doing gymnastics. And I saw Laurie in a gymnastics outfit. I cannot tell you what I thought. I shouldn't tell you what I thought. 
but don't judge me because you've thought it too. And then one of my buddies looked at me and said, man, aren't you lucky? I said, why? I says, well, no, everybody knows Laurie likes you. Well, I didn't know that. And it was the last class of the day. And as soon as the bell rang, I had mustered up my courage to ask her out. And I was overwhelmed that she said yes. So there it was, March 23rd, 1978, Laurie and I on our first date. We went to Pizza Hut, big spender. Then we went back to her house in the basement. Her mom and dad were there. Sat in a yellow bean bag, listened to Commodore's record, Lionel Richie singing, Easy like Sunday morning, yeah, 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 yeah. So, in the Song of Solomon, chapter one, this is how it starts, just follow along. Song of Songs, chapter one, and it starts like this, Solomon's Song of Songs. It's just Solomon himself saying, my girl and me, when we're together, all I wanna do is sing, like easy like Sunday morning. And in verse two, she starts out, Let him kiss me with kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. You'll never say that again the rest of your life, but you do in young love. No wonder the young women love you. So take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Young love makes you feel and makes you think and makes you say such personal things and brings on this strong sense of urgency to act out on those things. And so her friends say to her, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Isn't it good when your friends approve of the one that you love? And she goes on to say how right they are to adore you. Verse five says, dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon, Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and they made me take care of my vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. She had brothers and they made her work outside, which made her skin turn dark and as a result, she was self-conscious. Now that was opposite for me. When I was young, my mom always had me covered up from head to toe in the summer, so I was pale all summer, and because I was thin, I just had a low self-image, so I kind of identify here. Verse seven, so tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? She's so taken in by him that she constantly wants to see him and she doesn't want to hide the fact that she wants to see him. It was like after Laurie and I had that first date and between classes every day, I'd look around in the hallway to find her walking away from me and I was just imagining her in that gymnastics outfit and I was okay with that. Don't judge me. You've had the same thoughts. Verse eight, the friends say, Well, if you don't know, most beautiful of women, then follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Those are good friends helping her get a good look at her man. Verse nine, he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful like earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, I think when you're trying to compliment your girl, and you want to compare her to jewelry, that's okay, but I'm not sure I compare her to a horse. (laughs) Except you do understand, in that day, the horse was of such high value. He was using his contemporary culture to compliment her. And so it goes on and ends, verse 12, she says, 
While the king was at my table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. My wife has never likened me to a blossom, and I'm okay with that. He says in verse 15, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She responds, how handsome you are, my beloved. And oh, how charming. Our bed is verdant. And she replies, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. This language of verdant and cedars and firs is just simply referring to the lush green of nature. And that for them, their desire for each other was so strong they were just ready to have passionate love outside in nature, which is exactly how Adam and Eve had it in the beginning, naked and unashamed. But the lure of physical attraction will someday fade away. But I want you to know, first of all, that the lure of physical attraction is from the heart of God. It is holy and it is beautiful. So all young people need to know the best place to talk about passion and love is in the house of God. It's with Christian people because our creator created passion for us. It is good, it is from him. I do a lot of premarital uh, counseling is not the right word, it's just like enrichment, encouraging young couples for the things they don't yet know. And there's a program called Simbus, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And one section deals with sex. And I will often just go through obvious things that are obvious to a man who's been married 32 years, but not obvious to a couple that's getting married. And recently I was meeting with a young couple and she was sharing with me that she'd grown up in church and she'd gone through these purity commitments in their youth group and because she had been so committed to this for her entire life, maybe sex had become taboo. And she was a little concerned about her honeymoon and she began to weep a little bit. And I just simply had to encourage her, honey, this is from God. It's okay, it's okay for you and your boy to talk about this. This is from the heart of God. It is not taboo, it is a gift from God. But the physical attraction will someday wear off. Tommy Nelson's a preacher in Texas and as he was teaching Song of Solomon, he said this, wives, one of these days your husband is gonna walk out of the shower and you're just going to laugh. Ah, <laughs> it is true. Experienced it a couple times myself. But when your marriage gets really, really hard, it's not a laughing matter, is it? And there's coming a day that your husband is gonna anger you so that you're going to wish that one of those beams from the rafters would fall on him. Now, being married 32 years does not make me an expert. I understand that. But it does give me this perspective of a biblical truth that we must understand as married people. Whether you've been married one year, whether you've been married 50, this biblical truth is a help, and that is this. We don't have what it takes to keep the vows that we make at our wedding. Therefore, we must learn to be totally dependent on God. I'm gonna say it again. We don't have what it takes to keep the vows 
that we make at our wedding. Therefore, we must learn to be dependent on God. Sounds kind of bad to say that out loud, doesn't it? That we don't have what it takes to keep the vows that we make. That I, Greg, take you, Laurie, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse. I don't have what it takes in the worse. For richer and for poor, I don't have what it takes in the poor. In sickness and in health, I don't have what it takes in the health. To love and to cherish as long as I show up. I don't have what it takes. Husbands, you don't. Wives, you don't. We're all imperfect men and women. The only kind of people God has. We're imperfect, which means we're imperfect husbands and imperfect wives. Romans 3 is very clear. You understand that. It says, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all people, all husbands and wives, all marriages from the very outset are imperfect. We shouldn't be shocked by that. We just should be prepared. Laurie and I were on a marriage retreat years ago with some of the couples from our staff, and one of the first things we did one night was say, talk about your marriage in the early years. And when it came around to us, I went first. And I said, well, I remember the first few years were really great. And my wife looked at me and said, who are you married to? <laughs> and she was serious. Now what she went on to do, she, she said, well, you didn't do anything horribly wrong, but she went on to describe a young husband who attended his graduate school classes, who worked part-time at the church, played basketball with the guys. I would eat, sleep, and repeat. And though I love Laurie, I just didn't know how to be a good husband, didn't know how to care for her. I just cared for me. It's pretty normal. Speaking to a lot of husbands, you're going, thank you, you just helped me. Because <laughs> it's true, just didn't know. I have a vivid memory of about 15 years into marriage. I was standing in the kitchen, my wife was preparing dinner, and we were having one of those husband-wife spats. I don't really remember the cause of the spat, it was just one of those. And I was being the typical Ray Barone husband, where I really didn't want to deal with the conflict, just kind of laugh it off. But that approach wasn't working. She was still pretty upset with me. And so, in Ray Barone fashion, I just giggled and said, but hey baby, you love me, right, Shuggy? I can still hear her reply. She said, oh, I love you. I just don't like you right now. Well, that's the first time I'd heard that. Not the last. <laughs> but it's true and it's okay to know that we can love each other deeply, but husbands and wives, we make each other angry, don't we? You know why? Because you're imperfect. Don't be shocked when she makes you so mad, when he just irritates you, he's imperfect. Now I know that I am talking to couples today, some of whom goes way deeper than just that marital spat. Some of you have experienced abuse and neglect, unfaithfulness, deep hurt. Some of you have tried counseling Others of you are just too embarrassed or you're too proud to ask for help. Therefore, you're alone. And you're alone in a really bad marriage. Well, of all the couples that come to me and ask for help in their marriage, as they tell me their story, there's a common factor that I find in most of their stories. And that is this, is that the husband or the wife, and sometimes both, they don't have a clue 
have had to admit they don't have what it takes to keep their vows. And they have no clue of how to depend on God. So they depend on their own strength. And typically it was their own strength that got them to the mess that they're in, which got them into my office. And now their strength's depleted and they're exhausted and they're ready to give up. So for all of you in this room who have been married for some time and you're ready to give up, but nobody around you knows, when you're living in a sad, lonely marriage and you want to stop, could I beg you, don't give up. Admit you don't have what it takes. And then look up and beg God to help you learn how to be dependent on him. So for our last few minutes, this is what I want to encourage you with. I could give you self-help books. I've read a bunch of them on marriage. I know that it's good to have couch time. I know how to teach you conflict resolution. Like, if you have a conflict with your spouse, don't talk to the buddies first or your dad. Don't go to your girlfriends or go to your mom. You talk to one another first. Or make sure you're calm before you bring up the conflict so the emotion doesn't get in the way. But don't wait all day. Make sure you talk about it before you go to bed at night. And I could talk about the five love languages book. And husbands, if you don't know what that is, shame on you. Don't even go buy the book. Just Google the five love languages. You'll get the five. Find out which one your wife loves. Go do it before the day's over, okay? I could, we could talk about how it's great for the kids to see that the parents are a priority over the kids. And I could go on and on and on about those things, but I'm not really interested in that because that's still things you'll do in your own strength. I want to talk about, about how to depend on God's strength and what it looks like. So what if every husband in this room decided that we're gonna love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength? And then we were gonna love our wife as Christ loved the church. What if every wife in this room decided that she's gonna put God first in everything and follow him with all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind and all of her strength and then love her husband as the church loves Christ. Several years ago, uh, my wife and I were leading a young couples group and we were using the Love and Respect book, you know, by Dr. Egrich and his wife. It's a good book, Husband's Hint, Five Love Languages book, Love and Respect book, okay? And in that book, they talk about the priority of the husband and the wife to not have their spouse as number one in their life. In other words, wives, the number one man in your life is not your husband, it's Jesus. Husbands, the number one person in your life is not your wife, it's Jesus. As we were reading that chapter, my wife and I had this wonderful yet scary moment where we talked to one another and we both realized that Jesus was more important than we were to one another. It was scary because you realize, wow, I'm not number one in your life, but do you see how freeing that is? I don't have to be her perfect spouse. She does not have to be my perfect spouse because that's impossible to begin with. We are already married to the perfect spouse, Christ. And so we were freed up. As I went on reading that chapter, got to this place and I just laughed out loud. And my wife said, I know what you just read. Mrs. Egrich made this statement in the book that the sexiest thing on my husband is his relationship with Christ. 
Don't Google that. If you try to put in the sexiest thing on my husband, all kind of bad things come up. So just take my word for it. Go get the Love and Respect book and read it, okay? There was a couple that I met with a few years ago, and they were wanting some help. They had been together for five years, and they'd hurt each other. Not just one side. They'd hurt each other. And as they were sitting in my office, they couldn't even look at each other. So I said, well, tell me your story. And as they started telling me their story, I quickly realized they were going to have to learn how to forgive before they could love each other because they had hurt each other so deeply. So I stopped them so that they would look at me and I wanna show you what I showed them, husband and wife. And I said, and I would say to you, we can't deal with this relationship until we deal with this relationship. It is key for us to understand that we must depend on God And then he will give us what it takes to be a husband and wife that God intends. So how do you do that? It is not complicated. Solomon also wrote Ecclesiastes, and in that book he said, there's nothing new under the sun, and there's nothing new under the sun about what I'm about to tell you right now. It is so simple, but you just find yourselves not doing this. So this is what I wanna encourage you to do. Fight for a time and a place to spend quality time with him. Fight for a time and a place to spend quality time with the one who created you. Fight for a time. If you don't have a time of the day that you know you're gonna meet with him, then you won't. And if you don't have a place, then you'll have somewhere where you can be quiet and you can talk and listen to him. And as you're fighting for that time to spend in prayer and in his word, just realize this. When you and your spouse first started dating, you were getting to know one another, how did you do that? How was it that you got to know one another? Well, she talked, he listened. He talked, she listened. And then over the years, mainly she talked and he listens. But you talked and you listened to one another. Talking, that's prayer, just talk to the Father. Listening, that's reading his word. When we read his word, God's words never change. And so what he says to, says to us all through the centuries, he will still say to us today, take your word of God, find your time, find your place, be in the word of God. Because while it is really good to know the five love languages, it's better to know the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Husbands, take those nine words and live those to your wife. She'll love you to pieces. Wives, take those nine words, live them to your husband. You'd be amazed at how he's gonna respond to you. And while it is good to have some wonderful places to go on a date night, it is better to have a wonderful place where you know and you can't wait to get there to spend alone with the one who created you, the one who knows you, the one who knows the deepest longings in your heart and the only one who's gonna bring healing to you. And as you are in his word, this is what you will find out, three things. The more you're in the word of God, the more you will come to know who he is. And who he is is God and he's good and his character is perfect. And he's the one who has the answer to your hurt. And as you're in his word, you're going to find out who you are. You're a child of God. Ephesians 1 said you've been chosen by him. You've been adopted by him. You've been redeemed. 
You're forgiven. You're set free. You once were in the darkness. Now you're in the light. He's God. You're his child. And the third thing you're going to find that out of gratitude for who he is and for adopting you as his child, now you can live as a wife and a husband towards your spouse with greater joy. But I want to close with this. The reason I really want to point you to having a time and a place to spend with God, consumed by his word, is that in his word is where you're going to find the capacity to forgive. Listen, I know there's several couples in this room that the hurt goes so deep that the thought of forgiving him or her is beyond you. I know that. That's why the biblical principle is true and why you need to hold on to it. You don't have what it takes to forgive. That's why you have to depend on God. He's the one that will help you forgive. Husbands, wives, somebody has to go first and say, I'm sorry. Husbands and wives, somebody has to go first and say, I'll forgive you. So let me ask you, do you need a little motivation to learn how to forgive? Do you need to be motivated to forgive him? Husbands, do you need a little encouragement on how to forgive her? Here it is. God forgives you. When Jesus was on the cross, mocked, laughed at, beaten, pierced, nailed, crucified, and all the people who did that to him, he had in his mind when he said to the Father, Father, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. So maybe as you admit that you're imperfect, don't have what it takes to keep your vows, and learn to depend on God, God will give you the ability to say, Father, would you forgive her? Would you forgive him? They just didn't know what they were doing. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says it clearly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we apologized, he forgave us. Now, with that grace that's been given to us, now we give it to our spouse. It's not magical, but it is spiritual. So in your quiet time with the Father, let his strength be given to you so that you can give it away. And you can if you depend on him. Just ask these people, Dave and Karen, Todd and Beth, George and Cassie, Tim and Brittany, Dennis and Bonnie, Terry and Mary Jo, just a few. I can name dozens more who were at the end of the rope and they finally admitted they didn't have what it takes. And they learned to depend on God. And I wish you could see them now. The journey of two, scared to death, but they're set free because they've learned to forgive. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for the marriages sitting in this room. They're on their last leg and they're ready to quit. Father, I pray you would help them to understand they don't have what it takes. Help them turn to you and to be dependent on you because you're the one who does have what it takes. And what I pray, Father, is that for your glory, for the glory of Jesus and his bride, Jesus and his church, that these couples would be restored with a hard work of humility and forgiveness. And somebody going first and saying, I'm sorry. That then all those around will watch them and say, I want what they have.
and that what they would be able to say is what I have is Jesus. Can I share him with you? That's what I pray for their joy, for your glory. Pray in the name of Christ.